0: Chapter 10 of The Three Friends A Story of Rugby in the Forties by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Last Hours The last day of a last term at school is a time to be remembered. It is quitting a home where you have been more than happy, an arena where you have learnt your strength and wrestled, it may be, not in vain for victory and the round man who has there found a round hole exactly to his mind and measure cannot hope to find so good a hole for some time to come and this is true in a special sense of that exalted personage the captain of the eleven who has moreover a heap of things to settle including bills score-books future fixtures which have to be handed on and left in order for his successor and as being only human He probably thinks that successor is a fool. He will take pains to impress on him orally or by writing what is the only right and proper way of keeping up high class school and house cricket, which of course, like other high class things, is always in danger of going to the dogs. Look here, he will say to the coming man, don't you be in a hurry to choose your team? Listen to advice, but trust your own judgment. And don't choose fellows with nerves. They're no good at lords with all this, put pleasantly and well diluted, Fleming had a lively time of it in the morning. In the afternoon when all things were heavenly brightest in the summer sky, and dullest dreariest down below, working games being alike over, the general slackness was relieved by a long-promised single wicket match between Fleming and Thomas, who was his second in the eleven. The professional did the bowling, and three fellows fielded out for him was an interesting match, something like a minuet at a ball. A little stately and too imposing for the common sort, but a large number of the school attended, watching the different styles of the two players with keen interest, and when at last Thomas won by eleven to ten, owing to his forward drives, he was the first to acknowledge that, in a regular match, Fleming would have doubled his score by hits which didn't count, being behind the wicket. Such also was the verdict of the school, and everyone was asking, couldn't he be got to play tomorrow? And the seniors of the eleven, who were in council on the island, went still farther and said, we must have him. With someone to run and field for him, he wouldn't turn a hair. But how to manage it? Then suddenly Stammers, our old friend with the stutters, who had just got into the eleven and had nerves and was not much good, was seen approaching. He was, as usual, Looking very hot and red-faced, and carrying a ginger beer bottle, whereupon O'Brien started up and said, "I have it, boys. Leave it all to me." Stammers. "Yes. How awfully ill you look. What's the matter with you? Nothing. Nothing. Have you ever had the measles? No, I never catch anything. But there's a fe- fellow in our house has got it. Ooh, O'Brien whistled. That looks bad." and I say, Stammers, you've positively got an eruption out on your face. Don't come near me. It's only the midges. Everything bites me. Don't tell me, said O'Brien masterfully. Midges don't bite altogether like that. Midges run, like a lot of molehills, all along the forehead, just under your straw. But you, look at his cheeks there. As red all over as strawberries, with something coming up through them. It's an eruption keep away, don't come near us, we've got to play tomorrow. And then the other seniors, seeing the joke, joined in, vowing he looked awfully bad, just about to catch something, and so thirsty, too, just what a fellow always is in measles, until at last the unfortunate stammers, almost believing himself ill, was led away by a friend to go and see the doctor, and to learn his fate. There, it may be said, he found that worthy, always somewhat irascible, much excited by having missed a big country patient through his horse casting a shoe halfway and Stammer's confused manner being against him, he was ordered to go to bed or keep quiet and out of draughts or something confounded, sir, invisible till his case was more decided. poor Stammers, he was too healthy. the doctor did not know him, such persons, whether before a magistrate or a doctor, always give away their case, the more innocent they are the more guilty they appear. You could believe anything of them. Saved, said O'Brien, with a great chuckle, in which all joined except Gordon, who shook his head. And now for Fleming. Of what followed we need not speak, enough to say that Fleming was overpersuaded, got leave to play, and captained his team brilliantly on the next day. But in the evening, after all else was over, he and Gordon went out to take their last leave of the clothes. It was very peaceful and beautiful, a great contrast to the crowded scene of noise and merriment with which they were familiar. They did not speak much, small need to describe the thoughts of boys who have played an important part in school life when bring it to a close. If some things bring a blush or cause a regret, where they might have played a more strenuous and lofty part, there are far more which it is happiness to remember." School triumphs are not easily forgotten, even when we are old. Even Waterloos are said to give less unmixed pleasure than did a first prize or distinction won at school. And even if sometimes there is a little criticism, what fools we were then, or what fools those others were, and what a fine fellow A was whom we called a beast, and what a beast so-and-so was when we thought a hero, Yet, after all, boys are only boys, and do not torture themselves by vague, impossible ideals. And so, with few words but many thoughts, Fleming and Gordon wandered on. The air warm and balmy was what summer is at its best, when young before it has got sunburnt and overheated. A wise summer does not try to ripen the harvest too soon. And then in that dreamy, comfortable repose of a June evening, the past came back to them, There was the slope where the two had played cricket together their first evening—an accidental meeting, but destined to have a lasting influence on their lives. There, too, close by was the scene of Fleming's first memorable run-in, and Twining and Potter and the great switcher all came back to them, vivid and clear as in a landseer picture, just as if it were yesterday. Even the shouts and cheers, and the well-run, well-run, or at least the ghosts of them, seemed stirring in the branches of the mighty elms as if they ancient guardians of the close were also the watchers and recorders of the deeds done there above all there was the great elm greatest of all where fleming once risked his life to save another's all for a jackdaw's egg and now the old place silent and deserted was empty of the busy throng that played and fought there but full of memories haunted by familiar names and faces rich and beautiful in its summer garb of rustling green. The sheep, too, vanished at other times into corners were browsing up to the school windows, where the grass was longest. They now had come into their full inheritance. To them also it was a loved, though a disputed, possession. And lastly their old friends the rooks, older than the school itself, were sitting serene upon the treetops, No longer croaking over savage boys and beastly cricket balls, but letting out only an occasional caw, caw of perfect satisfaction, as if they also knew that the holidays were come. Rooks are like a Greek chorus, they express sententiously the feelings of the general spectator. Well, said Fleming at last, it is a jolly place. I wish we had to live it all over again. But Gordon shook his head. He could not say all. Life had not been so smooth and easy to him as to his friend, and he felt a want of bigger scenes, with more action and adventure. I want to do something, he said at last, not play. And as he hummed the old highland tune that set Scotch blood dancing, I hear the pibrocks sounding, sounding. His look was set and stern, and he clenched his hand, as if the cry of claymores was in the air. Fleming smiled, what fighters you all are, Alan. So are we in a way, but I can't think of it now, not on this evening. Besides, if one could do it all again, there are some things one would do differently. And then Gordon felt he had been a brute. Of course Fleming couldn't look on things as he did. I'm very Scotch, he said. You're always looking on and always fighting. We had so little to start with, you know. You took it all from us, and we have had to live somehow and get on by fighting. Then suddenly, as they looked up, they saw a tall figure approaching, seemingly absorbed in a book. Fulton, said Gordon. Ah, he said, as he looked up upon reaching their seat upon a bench, so you two are enjoying the last evening, taking leave of the old close. How quiet it is! Even the rooks are silent. Dull, I should think, it must seem to you. Dull, said Fleming, I wish we were to have it over again. Do you? "'Well, I suppose I did the same at your age. But now I'm like the painter, who didn't like looking at his old pictures. He had moved on.' "'I don't want to move on,' said Fleming. "'I do,' said Gordon. "'The third way,' said the tutor, "'is just to live for the day and then forget it. It's rather a prosy way, but it suits a schoolmaster. We should be wretched otherwise, losing so many old friends and pupils every year.' "'I should have thought,' said Gordon you'd be very glad to be rid of some of us.' The tutor smiled and shook his head. Evidently he did not wish to be rid of them. "'Well,' he said at last, "'you must often come and see us, bring us the last new thing from Oxford, and keep us from getting rusty. So a danger here. By the by, I forgot to tell you that you had both done well in examination. Your scholarship, Fleming, and your general work, Gordon, were much approved of, The boys looked pleased. "'Did you think you had done well?' "'I never know,' said Gordon. "'When I do know a thing, it seems awfully easy. I think that everyone must know it. "'And I,' said Fleming, "'am always thinking of my howlers. I make so many of them.' "'Ah, but a good examiner does not think too much of howlers. Everyone makes them. A paper may be a good paper in spite of many blemishes. It's like a good innings in cricket, where the good hits and sixers make up for a few bad mistakes.' is it not so?' "'Yes,' said Fleming, smiling, "'but unfortunately one mistake at cricket may be fatal at the start. You may get snapped up at slip, or at the wicket, and the fine hits never come off.' "'You have me there,' said the tutor. "'It's never wise to choose your similes from your opponent's profession. But you will understand me better if I say that a translation which shows real literary feeling will often get at the heart of the passage.' even though it want much in soundness and depth of scholarship. "'That's what O'Brien is always saying,' said Gordon. "'It's my literary feeling,' he says, "'tells me the meaning of that word. I'll not look it out. I'll chance it.' "'Does he? The rascal! And yet he, too, has done well in something. They say he shows real power in mathematics. I fear we have not made enough of him here. He seems to have quite a genius for mechanics.' and he sighed, thinking that idleness is often only undeveloped talent. The wrecks of school life might have been famous ocean-crossers and record-breakers under wiser management. Then, as the locking-up bell sounded, the two friends shook hands warmly with the tutor, thanking him earnestly for all his great kindness. They would never forget it. "'Don't speak of it,' was the answer, but—remember.' His voice faltered a little. "'I would—' there are a few things I would not do for either of you, if ever you want it.' But—and he looked wistfully at Fleming—'The first thing is to get well and strong. In the race of life no allowance is made for weak health. It is an even race, not a handicap. So, once more, no half-measures. Then they parted. "'What a man he is,' said Fleming. "'Couldn't you get him to come and join us in Scotland?' "'I'm not sure,' said Gordon thoughtfully.' he's almost too big a man for us. When I was ordering the gillies I should be always wondering whether he liked it. Our people wouldn't quite understand. But I'll ask my father. On getting to the house they found O'Brien in a state of rapture over his pipe, which he had just dug out of a hole in his study wall, where he had buried it. The beauty, he said, and kissed it, will never part again. They laughed and asked him what he thought of getting Fulton to join them in Scotland. O'Brien's face fell. And where would I be, he said, with your words worth and your love of nature and your happy warrior? Me, who haven't yet got beyond my love of poaching, like a happy raparee. And then the long tale of Tipperary boys I was bringing to fight your highlanders, Alan, number for number. Oh, murder, murder, there'll be no fun at all, if we have him there. Not for him, either. It'd be like a fish up a tree, or a cow out of clover, on the moors by my soul he will. And he'll always be saying to me, "Male O'Brien, in composition, governs a dative. Ah, then, let us be boys a little longer and enjoy ourselves like gentlemen. When I'm a soldier I'll be frightfully in earnest. I'll be weighing my fat major in his kit, boots and all, like the old Duke. And he was a patty too, God bless him. And mind you, boys, I don't mean to be a fool always. I want to be mentioned in dispatches and get stars and crosses and good appointments, and all that sort of thing, some day. Here I'm always wanting to smash up something, just for want of some excitement, and better to do. Nonsense, Pat, said Fleming. You don't know Fulton. Just you get him to talk about Oxford some day when he's off duty. He'll electrify you. Besides, he added quietly. You don't know what he has been to me. Don't doubt it, said O'Brien drolly, but I'm still a savage, you see. Three parts of me, how could I ever light my old pipe before him, when he'd see it was my old friend? O'Brien kissed it, by its color, why I should feel a shiver all down my backbone and think of paying a visit to the headmaster next morning, where—here followed an expressive bit of pantomime, which set them both laughing, and as O'Brien had once been flogged for killing a goose with a catapult, meaning to shoot just one inch above the creature's head, it was an authority on such subjects and, indeed, O'Brien is not the only person who has felt a like cold shiver down his backbone when he met his former tutor. His stories were true, more than one grim mustachioed old colonel, who has faced Alfredi Sangars without flinching, has felt the same cold shiver, and put away his habitual cheroot, when suddenly the well-known form of his respected headmaster came sailing round a corner. "'Besides,' said O'Brien, "'I never hit a haystack let alone a blackcock, if he were looking on. I'd always be thinking, Male governs a dative. Hang it. He'd look it if he didn't say it. Bother him. Ah, then, Alan, dear, don't be bothering about Fulton. Let's wait till we really want him. Keep him for an emergency, like the whiskey-bottle.' And so it was agreed, though Alan protested, that among the hills and heather, Fulton would be as young as any of them, perhaps more so, He had often seen him stroke his hand over his face when work was over, as if pulling off a mask, and then he seemed ready for anything, ready to romp over his garden gate, or even like O'Brien himself, ready to smash up something, just for want of something better to do. But this was not known or seen of all. Then, last seen of all in this strange history, came other leave-takings. Little fellows came shyly to Fleming to shake hands with him and take their leave, one brought him an old latin grammar illustrated by gordon in which the various tenses of the verb amo represented cricketers in different stages the imperfect was a slogger mowing round with his bat as if it was a scythe while his wickets were tumbling behind him the perfect was a knowing young person with his head in air ordering off some one who obstructed his light it is only in the eleven that you talk of light and such like luxuries the common sort have to be content with what they get. But the plus quam perfectum was a graceful figure, suspiciously like Fleming, with a fine sweep of arm and shoulder, hitting the ball square down to the bath, and over it was written, In Easy Sixer. i found it, said the little fellow. May I keep it? And Fleming smiled and said, Yes, but ask Gordon. Another fellow had cut Fleming's name on a school desk and had thereby lost many knives, confiscated by the watchful foremaster. Another had made a cave, alas, in the hall table, and buried there a house-list, with his hero's name emblazoned, carefully replacing the oak-lid, so that it would never be noticed. All had done something for their hero, and done it without thinking of reward. And to each and all, Fleming had a kind word and smile, and said something about keeping up the old house, which, coming from him, meant to his young hearers, doing their living best to make it A-1 in everything. Such words, at a time, had their effect. Fleming was not a boy of brilliant cleverness or great force of character, but there was in him a simplicity and charm of manner, which combined with his skill in games and kindness to little fellows, without spoiling them, made them ready to black his boots, or better still, stand more firmly in their own shoes." and put their backs into everything which makes for manliness in good living. And his love of the house found an echo in all hearts. They knew what he had done for it, without swagger and without brag, and they understood that they too were to do likewise. If they didn't, then, well, they felt as if he would come back some day, like a Barbarossa or Rip Van Winkle or other great heroes of old time." And give them all such a dressing as would make every lounger and bully and slacker hide away under tables, or cower behind moth-eaten old curtains and sofas in the bottom passage. What could such miserable creatures do before one who had thrown a cricket ball a hundred and ten yards, who had thrashed an ex-prize fighter turned policeman, and not to speak of sixers hit habitually to the bath, had jumped through the ropes of a swing right over the old island moat when at its fullest and broadest. If Damathocenes could swear a big oath by the shades of Marathon and Salamis, to shame the pitiful Athenians of his own day, surely they too had known something of a golden age which would rise up against them if unfaithful. And yet of all this Fleming felt little or nothing. He knew the fellows liked him, and he enjoyed his popularity. Who does not? But he never went out of his way to seek it. He was too modest, too sensible and simple by nature, as all good heroes should be, and his worst enemy, if he had one, could never say of him that he had laboured for praise or power, or as our poet says, sold the truth to serve the hour, or done any of those foolish things which men and boys will do out of vanity and self-seeking. The fact was, as poor harum-scarum O'Brien once said of him, he was such a beggar for style you could never satisfy him. In other words, he was something of a Greek by nature, and had all-around ideals which kept him out of lower ways, and though he spoke of these only as playing the game or good form, he really meant much more than he said. Boys generally say about one-tenth of what they mean, or even quite the opposite. It never does to take them too seriously. Their words of praise, such as the time-honoured awfully jolly, though applied to such different things as a new friend or a new waistcoat, merely mean that they like and admire both of them. They have not yet learned all the fine-spun, many-shaded epithets which in a gratis are found applicable to Vestus and Amicus. The knowledge of these only comes with age and growth of taste. But Fleming meant a good deal by playing the game fairly in good form. He had owed much to Gordon, and still more to his tutor's sympathy and wisdom not forgetting the sight of all his silver cups and boating trophies from Henley and elsewhere. And thus it was that a Greek nature, coloured by Scotch Puritanism and English truth and culture, grew to be something very good and useful, which in a graceful person is most attractive and leaves lasting memories. And yet Fulton was not far from wrong when he wrote to Arnold, who had left rugby suddenly, vowing that his villa on the Caucasus was not to be purchased there. Fleming is leaving for Oxford. I'm loath to lose him, and anxious as to his future. These Greek natures, you know them well, Arnold, with their strange power of fascination, their athletic keenness and enjoyment of the present hour, seem made for spoiling. Why care for learning when the playing fields are so attractive? Why think of the morrow when to-day is so delightful? What say you, cannot the delphic oracle give us some word of counsel to guard our young athenians from false ideals from caring only for bodily grace and excellence and to give them nobler ambitions than those of mere olympian rewards what arnold answered is not recorded in these days when athletics is so paramount when the castellian spring is probably let to a french restaurant and when the priestess if there be one would prefer a drive to olympia in a tandem to all the care of questions of politics and philosophy which perplexed the best and wisest in her country, it may be imagined what the answer would be. But then, when Fulton was writing the characters of his pupils, which he did slowly and thoughtfully, as if he saw the eyes that were to read them, and knew the hearts that were to feel them, the tide of athleticism now so full and brimming was only on the turn. And yet, recalling Colonel Fleming's letter, He felt that a little blunt and plain speaking would not seriously disturb the breakfast of the British parent. And so he wrote of some of them no care for books, too fond of athletics, seems to think and speak of nothing but cricket. Only of Fleming he wrote his love of athletics is so closely allied to the love of excellence that I believe it will end in something better and greater in the long run. And as he has the rare gift of making others follow his lead and guidance. I trust he will make this love of excellence the rule of other lives as well as his own. It is a great gift, which often amazes me. We shall miss him greatly. So wrote the tutor. And so mournfully, as though they lost a friend, felt the school. A school hero who has won all hearts by his bright leadership is not easily replaced. He has made the position, and if, as Mackie the midge said of Fleming, he was such a swell all around, then it may be long before a new candidate for all the honours can enter the arena. But as the glamour of fancy and affection dies away, then the Mackies and Midges, buzzing at night round the passage fires, begin to take a new tone, and the new leader is said to be not a bad chap. He might do, after all. Give him a chance, anyhow. Only here and there, some lover of the old hero is not reconciled, and one of them, a the great bullhead, expressed this feeling in his own peculiar manner when asked if he would return next half, by saying curtly, no, he wouldn't come back to follow another brute, he would leave. this thoroughly English way of veiling admiration was understood by all, and felt to be the greatest tribute of affection that Fleming could receive. It is hard to replace a hero. End of chapter 10 End of the Three Friends A STORY OF RUGBY IN THE FORTIES BY ARTHUR GRAY BUTLER